Welcome to our special series on Planet Word Museum in Washington, D.C. We are your hosts, Alexis Osipov, Kelsey Norton, Stephanie Webb, and we come to you from the Department of World Languages and Cultures at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. We are joined today by our guest, Miss Rebecca Roberts, curator of programming for Planet Word Museum, journalist, producer, political consultant, jazz singer, and nationally recognized author. Her works include The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World, co-authored with Lucinda Robb, Suffragists in Washington, D.C., The 1913 Parade and the Fight for the Vote, and Historic Congressional Cemetery, co-authored with Sandra K. Schmidt in 2012 with Arcadia Publishing. So um, once again, thank you so much and welcome to LLC Chat. It's such an honor to have you join us today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Thank you. Um, so I'll go ahead and begin. Um, my name is Kelsey and I have with me Stephanie and Alexis. This is their first time on the podcast with me. So we're very excited. Um, so yeah, my first question for you is, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with Planet Word? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm one of those people who has had a very meandering career path. I admire people who know when they're five that they want to be surgeons and go out and study and do that, but that was never me. Um, I was a journalist for a long time, and um, I had three little kids and a husband who traveled, and journalism was changing a lot, and it was just um, one of those sort of perfect moments where I felt like I was old enough that my kids were in school all day and I had infrastructure in place, but young enough that I could have a sort of second act. And I went to grad school uh, in anthropology specifically to get into museum work. I thought that it would use a lot of the same skills I had in journalism in terms of finding interesting stories and telling them to a broad audience. Uh, and it worked exactly the way I planned it, amazingly. I uh, got my master's degree at GW here in Washington. I did my thesis research at the Smithsonian and then was hired by the Smithsonian uh, to work there full time. And I was there about six years and the Smithsonian's awesome, right? I mean, everything is your business when you work at an institution that big and broad. So Monday I'd be talking about particle physics and Tuesday I'd be talking about Gothic architecture. And um, it was sort of, I knew a little bit about so many things. And then um, I was uh, given the chance to help start Planet Word. And Planet Word is a brand new museum about words and language here in Washington. It's obviously much smaller scale than an institution as enormous and international as the Smithsonian, but it was a chance to help start a brand new museum about something I'm passionate about in my own hometown. And who gets to do that, right? So I jumped at the chance that was just about two years ago. Um, and I am now, my title is curator of programming, um, but that means I sort of oversee programming, education, community outreach, visitor services, volunteers, and private events. Uh, so it's kind of all of the public facing sides of the museum. So how did the concept of Planet Word come about? Planet Word is a founder museum, uh, by which I mean there was one person who had that idea in her head and she made it happen. Uh, and that person is named Ann Friedman. 
she uh, had had a bunch of different jobs that had to do with words and language. She was a translator. She was a copy editor. She was a teacher. And when she was a teacher, she specifically taught the first grade. So she was kind of there at that moment when kids decode language. She watched kids learn to read and figure out that these symbols were letters and letters made words and words made anything you wanted them to make. And that moment of sort of joy and wonder um, was something she wanted to keep sparking, not just in beginning readers, but to kind of re-spark it in people who had lost it. And some of us do, right? You know, you keep hearing people say, I'm not much of a reader, books aren't really for me, you know, I'd rather watch Netflix, whatever. And so she thought about ways that she could build something that would inspire or re-inspire that love of words and language. And she read a magazine article about a hedge fund manager, a guy who had retired from being a finance dude and had started the Museum of Math in New York. And she thought, well, you know what? If you could have a museum to something as esoteric as math, you can definitely have a word museum. And so she decided the way to reignite that spark was to have a museum of words. And she just dreamed it up out of her own head. Uh, and she wasn't a museum person. She just hired a bunch of us who were. Uh, and she's still enormously involved. She, uh, her sort of sensibility and um, priorities infuse everything throughout the museum. Um, so we're very lucky to have her and Friedman. What is a museum of words and languages and who is the museum for? What is a museum of words? It's such a good question, right? <laughs> we don't have artifacts. We don't have a collection. It's not like you're going through and seeing stuff behind glass and text on a wall the way traditional museums are. Um, every so often someone asks us, do you have like Dead Sea Scrolls? Like, what do you even have in that museum? Um, so it is an experiential museum. It is immersive. Um, it is voice activated. And everything in the museum has to do with how words work. So we have, for instance, um, a massive 40 foot word wall that is kind of a 3D projection. The word wall itself is a physical thing, but then projected on it is the whole story of how words enter the English language. So you learn about the different civilizations that conquered England and brought their languages with them, but then you also learn about onomatopoeia and portmanteau and all the other ways that words get invented. And that whole experience is voice activated. So if the narrator sometime in that uh, experience is, for instance, talking about portmanteau and asks for an example, if someone yells out smog, um, you know, then it talks about that was coined by smoke and fog becoming a portmanteau. Or if someone yells out jorts, uh, you know, they'll talk about jeans and shorts. Uh, and so the narration branches off in different directions depending on audience input. And then there's just all the cool stuff you could do with words in the museum. So there's a karaoke gallery because one of the things you can do with, wor with, with words is sing them. There's a speech making gallery. There's a joke telling gallery. There's a magical library, which is super cool. Um, and then there's just kind of content everywhere, everywhere there, you know, all the words have quotations and jokes and slogans on them. The floor in the lobby has the history of alphabets embedded in the tile. The lockers where you store your stuff have the international phonetic alphabet on them. The, the tiles in the bathroom <laughs> have uh, euphemisms for going to the bathroom written on the tiles. <laughs> so it's just, um, it's very joyous and very uh, informal and uh, very irreverent, but you also just learn a huge amount just by walking in the doors because it's just content everywhere. That is so interesting. Um, could you actually tell us a bit about the building itself, the Franklin School Building and its historical significance? 
So we're housed in the Franklin School. The Franklin School is at the corner of 13th and K in downtown DC, about four blocks behind the White House. So right on the north side of the National Mall. And it was built in 1869 and it's a pretty imposing building. It's uh, this red brick schoolhouse with towers and weather vanes and it looks sort of uh, like a castle. And the architect was um, Adolf why I'm suddenly blanking on eight, on uh, our architect's name. Um, he was responsible for a bunch of uh, red brick turreted buildings in Washington, DC, in, most notably the Arts and Industries Building at the Smithsonian. Um, but in 1869, he built a few schoolhouses around town and um, he had a theory that students learned better in a building with natural light and good airflow, which was pretty radical in 1869. He was, of course, totally correct. Um, and it was also the very first co-ed public high school in DC, all white in 1869, co-ed public high school, which means it's perfectly symmetrical because no matter how uh, radical people were gonna be about having a co-ed high school, they were certainly not gonna let boys and girls in the school together in the same room. So there are two front doors, there are two staircases, Every single room on the north side of the building is exactly uh, mirrored on the south side of the building. And that actually makes it a pretty good museum because the galleries are of uniform, um, you know, symmetrical sizes as you go through the floors. Um, and it served as a school for the beginning of its life. And then it became what's called a normal school, a teacher training school um, for a few years. And then um, it became DC public school administrative offices, offices um, for the bulk of the 20th century. That's what it was. And it got kind of chopped up, you know, interior walls were built to build more offices inside. And then um, for a little while in the 20th century, it was a homeless shelter. Um, and then it was abandoned. So by the time Ann Friedman, our founder, got the lease on the building, it had been empty and neglected for a very long time. And even though it is a tank. I mean, they built them to last in 1869. So the structure wasn't crumbling. The interior was a mess. Um, and so the first thing that had to happen was a major historic rehabilitation of the building and it's historically protected. Um, so both inside and out. So, uh, you know, all those original tile floors had to be uncovered and rehabbed. The um, banister, which is gorgeous, but like not up to any kind of code and covered in lead paint and has enough space between it that two-year-old could go right through it to his death. Um, you know, those sort of things had to be saved as they should be, but then updated to make it adaptable for a 21st century museum. What are the operations like for the museum during COVID? The operations of the museum during COVID are tricky um, because it is a highly interactive museum. So you want people to touch stuff and it is not an environment where you want people to touch stuff. So we've done two things. Uh, we hand everybody a stylus when they walk in the door. The stylus uh, is works on all of our different touch screens. So instead of everybody pawing their way with their finger through all the various screens in the museum, they use the stylus instead. And then they can take it with them and they're out in the world with a Planet Word branded stylus and that works for us. Um, we have also very much limited capacity in the building, even lower than um, the city would let us have, in part because 
we were brand new when we opened in October. We had never had anybody in the building before, and we didn't really know where the bottlenecks were going to be. We didn't know how people were going to use the space, whether they were going to spend 30 minutes in this gallery or 10. Um, so we started with very low numbers so that we could learn from all of that. We also, because so much of the museum is voice activated, masks are an issue. Um, and you know, when you want someone to yell out something in that word wall experience, the mask really interferes with that. So we've had to kind of train people that it's okay to use your outside voice, which is hard for some people. I think we're all used to being kind of silent and respectful in museums and standing back and admiring the artwork and whispering. And so we've had to train people that not only is it okay to talk, it's okay to talk loud. <laughs> um, and also because there are so many little things in the museum that you have to discover that are not necessarily obvious, for instance, in the library, there are all around the room at eye level, these mirrors in gold frames. And on the bottom of the frame is a phrase engraved in the frame. And if you walk right up to that mirror and you say that phrase, then the mirror lights up and a diorama of the book from which that phrase is drawn lights up and the rest of the phrase is read back to you. And they're really, really cool. They were all designed by different artists that are sort of striking. But you have to be like brave enough to go walk walk up to the wall and start talking to it to do that. Um, and so there have been some tricky things, right? Like not only does the mask interfere with that, but also when our capacity is so low, sometimes when you walk into that room, you're the first person there and you feel a little crazy walking up and talking to the wall. It helps. It does. You don't realize how often in a museum or in any public space realize really, you sort of are trained in how to use it by watching other people use it. Uh, so we as staff members have had to kind of strike that balance about like how much do we let people discover this surprising, delightful thing on their own and how much do we tell them about it so that we make sure they don't miss it. And we're total museum nerds, right? And we think this museum is super cool. So we're like golden retrievers. Like we walk up to every visitor and be like, come over here, come over here, let me show you this cool thing. And sometimes we have to like stop ourselves. We're like, let them discover it on their own. We are not here to mediate everyone's experience in the museum. What is the immersive experience like for visitors? And are there any plans to bring these experiences virtually considering COVID? So we do um, have a pretty robust virtual programming uh, stream, which has been great. Frankly, you know, I've done a lot of um, programs for museums for a long time. And usually the model is that you want people to come to the to the physical building, right? The programs are to get people excited about the museum, to get invested in the museum, to become members, to see the temporary exhibits, whatever it is. And in COVID with virtual programming, um, I've really learned the benefits of that. You know, first of all, they're really cheap to put on. You can have guests from all over the world. You can have audience members from all over the world. I had a program just today where one speaker was in Uganda and one speaker was in Arizona and one speaker was in Brazil. And that's just not something you can do in an auditorium in a museum. So the virtual programs have been uh, a real way to learn how to spread the word of the museum to a broader audience. We also have been doing virtual field trips. Uh, so we've been able to bring the museum to school groups who won't be visiting museums anytime soon. Um, in terms of the exhibit experience, 
because they're so immersive, the, the kind of 2D version is, is a little bit of a letdown. You know, I mean, I could show you a video of that word wall. It's really not the same as being there. And so um, we're, there are some things you really do have to come visit. Um, now, we want everyone to come visit. That's why our founder built a physical museum instead of a website. Um, but I think we're all, all cultural institutions are figuring out the advantage to taking our content on the road, you know, on the virtual road and figuring out how to create an experience that's not just sort of a JV version of the in-person experience, because that's not what anybody wants, but take advantage of what a virtual experience does well. And we're learning that, everyone's learning that. Um, and it's been fun to experiment and see what other museums are doing too at the same time. So you've already mentioned uh, many highlights of the museum, but are there um, other exhibits worth mentioning and which exhibits have been your favorite? Oh, there's so many worth mentioning. Oh, there, <laughs> there, of there's, there, yeah, they, I have to say, um, I get a kick out of a lot of the exhibits and I have not gotten to the point where I'm jaded about them at all. Um, even the karaoke room. So it's, it's pretty traditional karaoke, right? Like you choose a song, you step up to the mic, the lyrics scroll in front of you. Uh, but at the same time that the lyrics are scrolling down the center of the screen, on the side of the screen, you're getting um, the songwriting techniques that are being employed. So as you're rocking out to single ladies, you know, on the side of the screen, it'll say Beyonce's using echo or assonance or slant rhyme. So you're getting a little lesson in the songwriting techniques. I will say I am less excited about that gallery having been open for a little while because like 80% of the people who go in there choose Let It Go from Frozen and I never wanna hear that song again. But that's just part of the experience. Um, there is also this crazy little room that is a tiny windowless gallery and you sort of wonder, what do you do with that? Um, it's got projected on three walls, a mural and it's like a city scene and then it sort of becomes more pastoral and there's a little lake and, uh, and then a mountain and a bridge and a little chalet. And you take a fiber optic paintbrush and you dip it in a bucket labeled with an adjective and depending on what adjective you choose, you then paint the wall and the whole scene changes depending on what you chose. So if you paint it with hibernal, everything becomes very wintry and the sky gets dark and the bird that flies through becomes a snowbird and uh, the building becomes a ski chalet. Uh, if you paint with nocturnal, the sun goes down and the moon comes out and the bird flying through becomes an owl. Um, you know, crepuscular, autumnal, uh, magical. Magical is really fun to paint with because there's like a little frog that if you paint it, it becomes a prince and the bridge becomes a rainbow. Um, and there are doubles in there that I didn't know about. I knew what happened when you painted with just one adjective, but more than one person can be in there at a, one, at a time. And so sometimes the words cross each other. So like where tempestuous, when, it, when you paint with tempestuous, it rains, but where tempestuous crosses hibernal, it snows. Um, hibernal plus nocturnal means the Northern lights come up. Uh, so it's just kind of jaw dropping technology and you don't even really need to read. We've seen little kids kind of tide pool in that gallery, but it really does show you in this very informal, you don't even realize you're learning way, how the description of a setting really changes its mood. Um, and you can go from there into the library. So you have this sort of direct path 
to how writers make you feel about something by using certain adjectives. Um, so that's a super cool gallery. That is one of my favorites. Uh, I'm still discovering little Easter eggs in there. Um, there's a speech making gallery, which is sort of similar to the karaoke experience. You learn a speech and also the rhetorical techniques the speaker is using, and then you choose one to deliver yourself. That one, when you deliver it yourself, you're in a little soundproof recording booth. So we don't hear people giving their speeches, um, but we we know what people are choosing because we see the data. And I will say that um, Mufasa's Circle of Life speech from The Lion King <laughs> is beating out JFK, ask not what your country can do for you. Um, but again, like throughout all of this, through the songs we choose, through the books in the library, through the speeches in the gallery, we are trying to make it so there's something for everyone, something no matter how old you are, no matter what it, you're interested in, no matter what your background is, you know, this isn't an elite institution that is telling you there's a certain way to speak English. And if you speak it a different way, that's non-standard and it's not okay. We're not here to correct your grammar. In fact, we do not believe there's such a thing as standard English. You know, if you were taught that, you were taught that probably by a white guy who went to a certain, you know, school in the Northeast that it's, there's no such thing as standard English. English evolves and changes. And that's why it's so exciting and wonderful and beautiful and powerful. Um, and the way you speak is valid and you've got that superpower. So that lesson is reinforced everywhere in the museum as well. What are the future plans for Planet Word? Any special exhibits or events? So these really cool immersive experiences are permanent. They do not rotate in a traditional way. We will update them, you know, we'll add some books to the library and some songs to the karaoke and stuff like that. Um, there's a poetry nook and we've been getting a lot of interest in adding Amanda Gorman to the poetry nook, things like that. Um, I will say what's coming soon is, uh, so the museum is free. It's, Washington is full of free museums. It's pretty hard to be a ticketed museum in this town, but we also really wanna be accessible in that way. But we are building one experience that is gonna be ticketed and it's a puzzle room. And it's being designed by a firm whose main gig is escape rooms. But uh, you go in and the whole thing, and I've only seen drawings of it. It isn't built yet, but it's kind of our next big thing. It's sort of set design to look like a quaint little village. And there's a long counter on one side where you rent a case and the cases, each one uh, has a letter on it, but like one looks like a hat box and one looks like a violin case and one looks like a cupcake carrier. And they're all just sort of visually appealing. And uh, you rent by the case, not by the human being. So you can do it with a group and you get your case and you take it to a table and you open it up and there's a whole series of nested word puzzles inside that you have to go around the room, this little village to solve. Um, and so it's um, a totally analog experience in this very high tech museum. It's definitely geared to groups um, and it's, um, there's, there's a real population of word puzzle nerds out there. We have heard from all of them, I promise you. <laughs> I mean, everybody who really loves crosswords and acrostics and um, boggle and all the sort of things that make words playful. I think they're just gonna really dig this experience. It's called Lexicon Lane. And I think we're planning to open it this summer. That sounds really interesting. That sounds like a lot of fun, especially the, the immersive painting room to me. Oh, it's so funded. cool. It's just, I, so like, cool. I, oh. I need a better word for it because I work for a word museum, but it's really cool. <laughs> awesome. Well, that was all the questions that we had for you. Um, again, thank you so much for joining us. We're very grateful for sharing your viewpoints. 
I am frantically scrolling to double check who the architect of the building is because I cannot oh, yeah. I forgot it. I've said it a thousand times. Adolf Kloos. There he is. Yay! <laughs> Bingo. The architect of the Franklin School was Adolf Kloos in 1869. Thank you so much. That's so cool. I'm already thinking of the next break I'm going to have to go. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds so yeah, cool. We're not far from Norfolk. Come on up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My son loves the Smithsonian, so Right. We there's a there's a term of art in DC tourism that you want to be the third day, right? Because people come for long weekends and they okay. do like the memorials on one day and the Smithsonian on the second day. And you want to be the third day. <laughs> so that's our goal. <laughs> the third day, perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thank you. Bye. listeners, I wanted to give a special thanks to Kishibashi for allowing us to play his song Marigolds in our podcast. Check him out on your preferred music listening platform. I also want to thank each of you, our listeners, for tuning into our podcast and for showing an interest in world languages and cultures. Happy listening! <laughs> <laughs>